I know, I know you went through withdrawal during the two-week break of the podcast over the holidays. So sit back now and get your fix as I lead off the year with a little bit of celebrating for the millions of workers who are going to see a bit more money in their pockets. And I also drill down again on Amazon's corrosive effect on the economy. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for January 9th, 2019. A reminder first that this podcast is brought to you, as it always is, in part by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and promotes mass transit. It's also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. You can also hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network on Thursdays at 6 p.m., and you can stream it on Spotify. We, of course, are very grateful to our smaller financial supporters, so please do go over to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show in this new year at whatever level you can afford. Now, my listeners know that I've spent a lot of time in the past few weeks talking about the Amazon robbery of the taxpayers of New York, a robbery made possible by a deal cut recently at the end of the year by the woeful governor and mayor who are handing over literally billions of dollars in subsidies to Amazon a company run by the richest guy on the planet with a market cap that will approach $1 trillion. And those subsidies are being given to put a big portion of its second headquarters in New York. And as many of you know, the other piece of the headquarters will be in Virginia. And today, Amazon is on the program again. And here's why. The Amazon headquarters deal is not simply about Amazon. It is fundamentally about the priorities of our society in the past, present, and future. And this is a moment, this Amazon deal, to evaluate the power of corporations and how corporations drain the public purse. It also raises questions of democracy, equity, equality, and shared commitment to creating a world where people can live with dignity, security, and respect. And there are three points that underscore this bigger debate. Number one, why should massive subsidies, that's taxpayer money, be given to big, wealthy corporations to set up shop and do business that they do anyway? The wealth of Bezos personally, and it's around $112 billion dollars, And the market value of Amazon, as I said, it's around $830 billion as of December, and it's going to certainly reach $1 trillion in the near future. That just brings the whole thing into stark relief. But it's not just about Amazon, because almost daily, corporations here and around the globe are draining hundreds of billions of dollars from the public in essentially what is a game of corporate blackmail. The second point, how do the people participate in defining how corporations provide jobs and at what cost? 
This HQ2 deal, the headquarters deal in New York, was shrouded in secrecy, negotiated by a handful of politicians without any public scrutiny or input. When corporations are using our resources, that's people, land, and money, and as I said, I don't think there's really ever an instance when taxpayer money should be given to big corporations, but when it is used, the people need to have a larger say. And the third point that this Amazon deal brings up, what is a good paying secure job in the future? While Jeff Bezos likes to promote the notion that he believes in quote-unquote high standards, this is something that he said publicly and to his shareholders, Amazon is really significantly powered. Its profits are powered by workers who are underpaid, lack traditional protections at work, and who have virtually no control over their schedule. Today, I want to approach this in a conversation with Oren Tyker, who is the CEO of the American Booksellers Association. And in a way, booksellers and authors were really Amazon's first victims. That's how the company began, as we know, as an online bookseller before its tentacles ensnared vast segments of the economy, from media and technical companies, and that would be in cloud services, ebooks, photo storage, music, video, film production, and Bezos' ownership of the Washington Post, to transportation, it owns cargo planes and has an emerging future drone fleet, believe it or not. In energy, it owns wind and solar farms, in financial services, hardware, healthcare, and of course, retail. But for booksellers, it's more than just about books. It's also about the way Amazon dodges its responsibility to pay its fair share in taxes and to make sure that its third-party sellers, those people who are on its marketplace platform, pay sales taxes, as Oren will explain. And really, Oren, people really know Amazon as this big behemoth that Basically, you can get everything on at this point, unfortunately. But really, it started, as you quite well know, you've been in this business for a very long time. It started as an online bookseller. And give us the one or two minute evolution of this and, and where you saw Amazon when it first started and what it has become in terms of bookselling. Well, look, you know, it is absolutely correct. You know, Amazon started. Uh, in the book business. Actually, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos was famously quoted at the beginning that he said he was going to start with selling books and music, of course, at a time when music was still a physical product. Uh, and he was going to do that for a bunch of reasons. First of all, our business have identifiable numbers on the product, so they were easy to track. Uh, they were easy to ship because uh, they fit in a box. Uh, and frankly, book buyers uh, tended to be a slightly more affluent uh, chunk of the population. And therefore, uh, once he got them hooked on books, he could begin to sell them everything else. I don't think there's any doubt that uh, uh, the vision for Amazon from the outset was to start with books uh, and to grow uh, as, as they have uh, to become uh you know, the world's largest retailer of every product under the sun. Now, books continue to be uh, a piece of what they do, but uh, each year a decreasing piece of their overall business. But nevertheless, uh, uh, for those of us in the book business, uh, they continue to be the 
thousand-pound gorilla uh, uh, in the book business because even with books being a smaller percentage of their uh, total overall sales, uh, you put all the major publishers, all the bookstore, uh, independent bookstores, all the chain bookstores, put everybody everybody else in the book business together, we pale in size to Amazon. Now, I know that probably many of my listeners know anecdotally of the crisis that now that Amazon in some way created for independent booksellers. And I wonder if you saw them as predatory from the outset. Was, were, was Amazon a threat? right out of the box to independent bookstores? Or is there something that Jeff Bezos did in terms of unfair competition and monopoly that made the crisis more acute? Well, I think at the outset, uh, frankly, there were a lot of skeptics that uh, people would uh, go on their computer and uh, use their computer as a way to uh, purchase products. Uh, Obviously, as time has gone on, uh, that skepticism has evaporated and uh, uh, tens of millions of American consumers use the Internet uh, uh, as uh, as the way to access products of every shape, size, and uh, uh, imagination. Certainly, at the outset, uh, none of us understood really uh, what the long-term ramifications and import was of an entity that would be as uh, engulfed and in it have its uh, uh, tentacles engaged in every conceivable part of American commerce as Amazon ha- has evolved. So I, I don't think it, uh, I think it's fair to acknowledge that uh, you know none of us quite understood at the beginning uh, how big it would all become. And there is no doubt that in the book business specifically, the as Amazon got bigger, uh, their outsized influence. Uh, has uh, distorted our business in a way uh, that ultimately, in our view, uh, is not good for uh, uh, not just for other booksellers, but is not good for publishers, is not good for authors, let alone for the reading public. You know, there's certainly, Jonathan, you're, you're, you're probably as knowledgeable about as ever that, as anyone is that, you know, there never has been an example uh, in American history uh, where that kind of concentration of power in the end uh, has benefited uh, consumers. You know, there may be short-term advantages in the competitive uh, uh, environment in which prices to consumers get reduced, uh, but ultimately, when you put all that power, all that concentration of influence in one hand, um, that never, ever has worked to the advantage of consumers. Certainly in our business specifically, uh, the whole evolution of the ebook controversy uh, uh, is a perfect example. Um, you know, back uh, six or seven years ago, um, there were a bunch of players in the ebook world that is providing digital content to consumers. Uh, Apple, Google, uh, Barnes and Noble, others were all in that business. Um, you know, as time went on, uh, Amazon deep discounted digital content radically, well below cost, uh, in order to gain market share. Uh, and uh, basically, as fast forward to 2018, has eliminated uh, virtually all uh, ebook competition, and now prices have gone up. Uh, so I, I don't, I, I don't think. Um, 
there, there could be much doubt that the impact on our business has been acute. But more broadly, you know, you look at the overall um, American economy, you know, Amazon is responsible for a net loss of hundreds of thousands. I'm saying hundreds of thousands of jobs across the United States. Uh, their failure to collect uh, uh, tax uh, at the state and local level, you know, we've calculated based on some independent analysis, uh, you know, has cost state and local government almost a billion, and I say a billion dollars in revenue not collected. Uh, the recent announcement of the location of HQ2, uh, in which uh, governments at the state and local level are subsidizing Amazon to the tune of billions, and I say billions of dollars, uh, all to benefit what is clearly one of the world's most successful, richest, most profitable corporations, all strikes us as being, um, you know, uh, uh, a real, real problem. And I think, you know, look, I, I, you know, as a representative of America's independent booksellers, we, we understand consumers are going to shop online. And obviously there are conveniences of shopping online that certainly, um, you know, at certain times make, make a lot of sense. What I think the public largely doesn't understand is that the overall economic impact of that concentration of power, that loss of tax revenue, that loss of jobs, the massive amounts of public subsidies, when you put all that stuff together, it's very, very difficult uh, to justify and very, very difficult to say this is good for the overall economy. And so you made a few very important points um, in those remarks. And so I want to circle back and start with this issue of the lowest price, because we've seen the impact of that throughout the economy, not just when you talk about Amazon, but take Walmart, for example, which competed against many retailers in that sector and drove prices very low. But the fact is that number one, as you well know, Walmart pays its workers very very low. And the people who overwhelmingly shop at Walmart are people who can't afford to shop elsewhere. And so it is that broader cycle in the economy that if wages are not high and we aren't willing to pay something that's not just the lowest price, but a reasonable price to so that someone can make a profit, so an author in the case of books can make a decent living, then it is this incredible cycle that just descends downward. And that is one of the reasons that I've spent a lot of time on this podcast or on Amazon. And to your point about the recent uh, agreement in New York and in Virginia over the HQ2, you guys did do this incredible study, which I've read with civic economics about the effect on Amazon and American communities. And so let's dig a little bit more deeper into that. You mentioned that, and I looked at the specific New York statistics, the hundreds of millions of dollars in sales taxes from the third party independent sellers that the state does not collect. The thousands of jobs, I believe in New York, I'm not looking at the number, it was around 40,000 jobs lost because of Amazon. 2,500 roughly stores closed. So Amazon is essentially slowly but surely eating away at our economic base. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, on, on the tax side, you know, there, there has never, to my knowledge, been a been an entity that um, uh, 
has grown basically with a policy of tax avoidance. Jeff Bezos famously, when um, Amazon was launched, boasted that, you know, come shop online and you don't, you don't have to pay sales tax and use that competitive advantage uh, in a way that drove customers. And of course, in New York and other states that have six, seven, eight, nine percent sales tax, uh, certainly uh, he, the government uh, was inadvertently uh, subsidizing one company. Our position all along has been about that, is that, look, you know, businesses um, have a right to exist, but they don't have a right to exist uh, uh, at a competitive advantage that the government, in effect, subsidizes competitors. Uh, you know, it'd be like going down the street of a bunch of retail businesses and go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Well, this business doesn't have to collect tax. This one does. I mean, clearly everybody would understand that would be colossally unfair. And Amazon built it, its um, uh, customer base largely through this policy of tax avoidance. Now, fast forward to 2018. Now, New York, frankly, was one of the first states to acknowledge this and require uh, remote sellers to uh, collect sales tax. Now, all uh, 45 states that have state sales tax are, in fact, collecting it. And as you probably know, the Supreme Court uh, um, uh, uh, earlier uh, or last year in 2018 upheld uh, uh, the legality of states and local governments collecting taxes on uh, uh, remote sales as being perfectly uh, constitutional and perfectly perfectly legal. But today, um, as the Amazon business has f grown even further, there are literally hundreds of thousands, and I'm saying hundreds of thousands of other businesses that operate on the Amazon marketplace who, in effect, are continuing not to collect state and sale, state and local sales taxes. So, though I direct purchases on Amazon now in those 45 states are, um, uh, all the, the marketplace sales uh, in virtually all of those 45 states that have sales tax are not collecting those taxes, which is why uh, there continues to be this incredible bleeding of a failure uh, to for for those businesses to pay their fair share. And again, I you know we, we're not this isn't punitive. We're not suggesting that that um, you know people. Uh, uh, it's just a question of fairness. Is that you know if one business selling product or services to a consumer is obligated to collect and charge sales tax because that's what that local government or state has uh, uh, has imposed. Well. Why shouldn't that be uh, an effect for everybody? Those, those. So uh, uh, the the continued policy of tax avoidance uh, is costing American taxpayers uh, a whole lot of money uh, directly because of how Amazon operates. And what that means, to be very concrete, is then when when Amazon is costing state and local governments revenue, that means that essentially Amazon is indirectly or directly cutting services and cutting things that people benefit from, whether you're talking about paving a road or building a subway or fixing some water system. That is a direct effect of Amazon essentially dodging its responsibility because we don't, you don't have enough money to do the things you want to do. 
I mean, all of those products, I mean, initially those products purchased directly from Amazon, and now certainly those products uh, that are coming through their marketplace uh, retailers, you know, those products get uh, shipped in boxes that get delivered to trucks uh, that use the same roads that you and I pay for uh, by our state local taxes. And how could it be that they could say, well, we don't have to pay for those roads? Uh, well, I, you know, you talk about uh, some colossal unfairness. Uh, if that's their business model, if they're selling products that require distribution over the same public roads that the rest of us use, well, why shouldn't they pay for it? Uh, so, you know, I, I think the the uh, Amazon has. Ha- has um, you know created new ways for people to acquire products and look I I again I want to be clear I I'm not you know suggesting that um, you know we don't want to um, bury our head in the sand in 2018 clearly uh, the internet uh, is an indispensable lifeline uh, for acquiring product for lots and lots and lots of consumers. Um, all we're suggesting is if that business model is viable, as obviously it is, it ought to operate under the same rules that all the rest of us do. Mm-hmm. And so to sort of move now our conversation to how booksellers are responding to this, as I told you just before we came on to record, I'm on a mission to get people not to buy from Amazon. I know that you're not trying to necessarily say that yourself, so that's my position, and that they should actually patronize uh, independent bookstores in their communities. And the first thing that when you talk about online, almost every bookseller that I know, and certainly the most obvious ones like Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, has an online business where you can get every single kind of book that you might get at Amazon, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the fact is, in 2018, uh, the internet is not exactly uh, a deep, dark secret, and uh, how one sells product online uh, is available uh, to everybody. Uh, the American Booksellers Association operates uh, a program we call an e-commerce, which provides um, e-commerce uh, capability for about 400 of our members. There are other e-commerce platforms that stores do. So yes, I mean, if you go uh, to virtually any independent bookshop in America uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, find their website, uh, they have access to exactly the same uh, inventory of titles uh, that our large corporate competitors do. So, uh, yes, you can shop at our members online, but of course, what we do um, is something a little different. I mean, what we do uh, in our member stores is create an experience. Uh, We create an opportunity for consumers to come in browse the shelves, uh, and discover books that perhaps they didn't know about. You know, the internet works really well uh, when you know exactly what you want to buy. And certainly, obviously, there are uh, a certain number percentage of book purchases that, that, that um, you know, come about that way. But for most of us, uh, it's the browsing of that shelf uh, of books or looking at that table of new releases uh, that one thing catches our fancy or not. And it's when one looks at that array of titles and look, frankly, it happens in bookstores, happens in libraries as well. Um, It's that uh, ability to discover books that 
frankly, is is the indispensable ingredient uh, in how the book business works, because it's that uh, discovery of things perhaps you didn't know about uh, uh, that that helps drive the business. So we're, we're you know, we're just to, to be clear, I, I, we're not ever uh, suggesting that people ought not to be shopping online because certainly we get it uh, uh, that sometimes it, it, it is the best and most efficient way to acquire things. Uh, but that experience in a physical store is unique. And and the good news is, is that there are millions of consumers who get that. And uh, that's why independent bookstores, despite this incredible competition for Amazon, are actually doing pretty well. And so to your point, it's one of the reasons that I like reading the newspaper in its actual newspaper form is that when you look at something online, whether it be a newspaper or when you're shopping online, somebody's curating that and somebody's setting it up in their own vision. And it restricts your ability to, as you point out, to browse and to let your curiosity and your sort of discovery and happenstance find something that you might be interested in. And I do agree that going into a physical bookstore is a much better experience. Now, I'm wondering whether you you pointed out that indie commerce is operating and i think this is just to underscore this indie commerce i assume you set up partly to help with the economies of scale for bookstores that certainly don't have the capital like amazon but in a way of kind of marshaling resources so every bookstore will have the basic operation if you will the guts of the web to be able to sell right yeah, I mean, look, you know, the fact is that's what trade associations do. We're able to bundle and package programs and services uh, that we can uh, create or acquire or purchase uh, collectively and then be able to divide it up amongst people at a radically uh, lower cost. So, yes, you know, when you go to uh, a lot of ABA member bookstores and you look at their website, I mean, the front of their site is all theirs, uh, their staff recommendations, all the things that make those stores interesting and different and unique uh, are all there. But the back end uh, is something that we uh, operate on their behalf to create uh, an economy of scale um, that allows stores to um, exist and to function um, uh, pretty in a real kind of state-of-the-art way online. I mean, I think the other um, important distinction about um, shopping um, in a physical place as opposed to uh, online is that um, you know, you, you, you alluded to curation of content. You know, in the United States, uh, we are publishing more books than ever before by many, many times. So the volume of content out there has radically increased. And, and so the role of the bookseller uh, as the curator, if you will, of that content has never been more important. Um, and, you know, what booksellers pride themselves upon is knowing the communities in which they are. Uh, very few stores, Powell's perhaps is one of the uh, uh, clear uh, exceptions. You know, you can't have everything on your shelf. Uh, and uh, um, so the decision of a bookseller and deciding what goes on the shelf, curating that content to reflect the community, uh, to be knowledgeable about where they are has really never been more important than it is today. Uh, so 
having people work those stores uh, who are selling content that has been curated, and then frankly, people who are working those stores uh, who know about the books, um, they're able to recommend, we call it hand sell, being able to uh, say to the customer who comes in and says, well, I'm looking for, you know, what's the best new mystery about a woman detective? And, you know, somebody being able to pull off the shelf, uh, whatever the three books that might be appropriate, or what's the best new novel, uh, historical novel published about World War II, or what's the biography of some uh, obscure uh, 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 figure in American history that that you want to be reading about. I mean, what you find in our stores are people who not only have a passion about books, um, uh, they're likely to have read a lot of the titles that they're selling or somebody in that store has, uh, so they're able to put that right book into the customer's hand. That's unique, uh, and uh, we continue to uh, take great pride in doing that. Um, you know, it, that doesn't mean we don't have to be smart about using technology. And certainly one of the reasons that indie bookstores are doing better is that they are using technology in a smarter way, whether it's the kind of back-end way in which stores operate, and certainly in the way we use our websites and social media and email to be able to communicate with our customers. You know, we live in a world in which you got to have your feet firmly planted on both sides of the digital divide uh, in order to be able to be successful. And um, I think the good news is lots and lots of stores do that every day and they do it extraordinarily well. So really the whole conversation we've just had and the whole conversation we need to have about Amazon is not just the effect it has on, say, booksellers, but the way in which it affects Main Street America and really every corner of the country. The one, the one, you know, thing about indie bookstores that I think is, um, you know, or just, you know, I think overall that one of the effects of Amazon on the retail uh, space in America is that, you know, lots and lots of retail communities are increasingly dominated by um, restaurants, by bars, by nail salons, by all the kind of service-oriented uh, entities and a lot of other retailers who sell physical product um, are going away. And that, of course, changes the nature of those retail areas and changes the behavior of consumers. So for us, you know, one of the real threats about Amazon is that even though book sales and our members have figured out how to compete when the local um, uh, shoe store down the street goes away and the local drugstore down the street goes away and the toy store goes away, that, that there are fewer customers coming uh, to those shopping districts, which has impact on our businesses. So I think, you know, one of the, you know, kind of broader points about Amazon's impact on America is it is changing uh, what main streets look like. Um, and frankly, um, I think there's a pretty strong case to be made. It's not changing it for the good.
As the year turned, millions of workers could smile a bit more. As the National Employment Law Project tells us in its recent report, 22 million workers got a raise in 40 different jurisdictions, that would be in states and cities, when their legal minimum wage rates went up. That includes 13 cities and counties where the minimum wage will actually reach or go over $15 an hour. And down the road this year, three more states and 18 cities and counties will increase their minimum wages. Now, this is a really good thing, even as I say again something that I always underscore, that the real minimum wage should be at least $20 an hour if you figure how hard people have worked over the last three decades. Now, these hikes in the minimum wage are not happening because of some great awakening by businesses that they all of a sudden have realized that they have to share the fruits of the hard labor of workers. And it's not happened because of some mass change on its own among politicians. This is all about organizing, the rising up of millions of workers who seized the call in 2012, very much sparked by fast food workers' demands, that people had had enough working for starvation wages which is essentially what the putrid federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour is. And that wage, and this is an utter travesty, has not increased in 10 years, in a whole decade. Putting aside the immorality of forcing people to live in poverty who work full time in the richest nation on earth, I've made the point here many times that it's just stupid economics. When millions of people can't make ends meet, they can't pay their bills, and they can't go to the store to buy basic needs, not to mention pay for college for their kids, or maybe have a few bucks left over to go to take a working class vacation every few years. To talk more about this, I'm happy to welcome to the show Yannette Lathrop, an analyst and researcher with NELP. One of the things that I loved about your report, Yannette, is as I was reading it, it reminded me went right up in the first sentence that really the Fight for 15 launched in 2012, which, as you point out, the fast food workers in New York City walking off the job. So literally in just six years, which is a relatively short time in movement politics and changing policy, there's been a tremendous amount of change, a tremendous amount of progress on the levels of the minimum wage and where it stands now. And so maybe we can start with you giving kind of a sense of an overview of where you've seen these changes, certainly what's now coming into effect as of the first of the year, and give some context of where that's going. Yeah, so the the impact of the Fight for 15 has been huge, really, and it has spread around the country. It's not just concentrated in the major cities or the coasts. Uh, in another report that uh, we uh, put together not too long ago, uh, we estimate that about 22 million workers have received, will have or will be receiving $68 billion in raises as a result of the Fight for 15. And, so, and that, is, that really uh, ranges across the, the whole country from New York to California to Missouri to Arkansas to the Midwest, uh, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minnesota. It's just all over the place. 
It is huge. And just on that number, when you say $68 billion, let's be clear to my listeners, that's $68 billion that people are going to have now in their pockets to be able to pay their bills, buy groceries, buy gas. And essentially, and this is one thing that drives me crazy about conservatives and people who always say, oh, the minimum wage is this terrible thing. This is really about generating economic health and economic activity, right? Correct. And, you know, it is about paying the bills. It is about having some sort of, uh, you know, uh, basic standard of living. It's about the community. It's about the, the local economies. Everyone really uh, benefits from a higher minimum wage. It, you know, trickle-down economics has been uh, proven to be ineffective. Uh, but you, when you raise the bottom for the lowest paid workers, you do increase uh, the the the, uh, the purchasing power of those workers who are affected, but also the ability of businesses to thrive in, those, in that environment. Ah, and you gave my perfect lead-in to a question I wanted to ask you. This is what uh, what is known in the uh, interview world as a softball, because one of the things that you're very, very familiar with is the nonsensical argument that somehow the minimum wage is going to force all these businesses to close their doors, and it's going to be a terrible thing for the economy. And it not it true, in fact, that the actual studies that have been done on minimum wage hikes shows that there's almost no effect in terms of employment. And in fact, obviously, as we just discussed, there's a terrific terrific effect on economic activity because people have money in their pockets. Correct. And that has been uh, proven time and again. I mean, the studies that we have seen in the very, very early stages of minimum wage research were very simplistic and they did, did find some small effects on employment. But overall, when you looked at all those studies, uh, past and present, uh, you tend to see that the impact on employment really is zero. Neither it increases it too much, nor does it, nor does it decrease the employment all that much either. It really has no impact on employment itself, but it really does have a huge impact on pocketbooks of people. Um, and it's interesting when we talk about studies that, um, a, back in 2017, actually, there was a uh, uh, study um, that was published by researchers from the University of Washington regarding the Seattle increases. At that point, Seattle had just been increasing the, its minimum wage. By the time that they studied it, they had the, the minimum wage had reached, I think, $13 an hour. So it wasn't the full $15 uh, minimum wage increase yet. But these, these uh, researchers found uh, uh, they found uh, impacts on, on uh, the, the number of jobs and, uh, and earnings for low-wage workers. And just last year, 2018, they had to uh, uh, backtrack and, and they revisited their study and they found that really they had been mistaken. So, you know, even those who are inclined to find uh, negative effects from the minimum, minimum wage as of late, they have um, you know, they have to, they, because of the, the amount of criticism uh, they had, and because uh, honestly, their methodology was pretty flawed, and um, various economists cover that. But because of that, they had to really revisit their study, and, you know, they had to be a little more rigorous, and they eventually found no, sorry, no effect. Yes, I think I remember seeing not too recently, just in the last few weeks, that great graph that shows tremendous, um, strong job growth in the Seattle area, even with the increase in the minimum wage, to your point that, in fact, when the minimum wage increases, there is no real negative effect on employment. And in fact, in some cases, 
it helps employment because let's face it, just what we said before, increasing the minimum wage helps economic activity because the truth is it's average people who go out and spend that money. Rich people, when they have millions of dollars and they get all these great bonuses, they only can buy two or three yachts, I I would assume, or three or four homes, whereas Um, regular people, working people who are working for the minimum wage, they actually take that money they get in their paycheck and they go out and spend it. So it has a general economic effect of a positive nature because people actually go to their stores. They have to fill their car up with gas to get to work and all sorts of other aspects like that, right? Correct. And they can can finally perhaps buy fresh fruit instead of canned fruit, et cetera, for their families. You know, uh, minimum wage workers just, unfortunately, I think this is uh, you know, maybe it's pessimistic in me, but uh, unfortunately, they have to go out and spend the extra earnings right away on basics. A lot of the times, very few of them have any uh, sort of savings. Now, the two caveats I want to throw in here just to kind of brainstorm with you about this is that this movement has been terrific. It's really amazing how quickly people have been able to move the minimum wage at the state level. And partly that's because the Fed, the federal level is so low and there's gridlock on raising the absolute poverty level federal minimum wage. There's gridlock in Congress. And certainly uh, we currently don't have a president who's interested in raising the minimum wage. And so the activity, the real great activity at the state level has been terrific. But there's two aspects of this that I think I want to remind my listeners about this. When I, and it occurred to me, number one, when you talk about California, California is one of the most expensive places to live, certainly when you're talking about housing, and certainly when you're talking about some of the localities that you have in this terrific table that you produce, San Jose, San Mateo, Sunnyvale, and Oakland, in fact, Mountain View. These are all places where, largely because of the growth of the high-tech industry, housing is just so expensive. So even raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, let's be very clear to people. It's not as if people are all of a sudden swimming in a tremendous amount of money. It still is not enough to really have a middle-class living, right? That's correct. Uh, About $15 minimum wage is about just a little over $30,000 a year prior to taxes. So it really is not a whole lot of money, especially in cities like uh, those that you mentioned in California or New York or Washington, D.C., or even some of the big uh, uh, areas in the Midwest, such as uh, Minneapolis and, and uh, Chicago. Uh, those are just, you know, 15 is is the start. It should not be the, the end goal. And of course, I wasn't even including the cost of, say, you want to send your kid to college. My God, the cost of sending kids to college now is so astronomical goal that the minimum wage at $15 an hour still does not make it possible. Now, the second thing I want to remind my listeners, and this is a point I've been making in this podcast almost since we started, is that if you actually looked at what the minimum wage should be, and I'm mostly talking about the federal minimum wage, but generally speaking, the minimum wage, if you look at productivity over the last 30 years, the federal minimum wage should be at least $20 an hour. So, and I say that to put this in context that while $15 an hour is a great increase, certainly compared to the federal minimum wage, it still is lagging behind what workers really deserve and should earn at the minimum wage that they should have given where productivity has been and how hard people have worked over the last 30 years. Correct. Uh, And that is why a $15 minimum wage really is the start. 
And obviously, we will say this because I know that both you and I are quite pro-union, that one of the things that is connected to the movement for minimum wage is people, workers in the fast food industry especially, are trying to organize a union because ultimately that's the best security that you can have in terms of wages and benefits is to have a union in the workplace. It's great to have these ballot initiatives pass and legislatures be forced to act because of the will of the people. But ultimately, at the, if you will, at the factory level, at the fast food employer level, you really have to have a union to make sure you can have decent wages to live. Exactly. There is a premium to uh, being in a union or having strong unions around you. Uh, even if you're not part of a union, having a unionized workforce around you can actually increase your own wages. Now, let's just um, touch on a brainstorm a little bit about one area that you and I talked about briefly before we came on to record and talk. Um, There is, to me, a little bit of an interesting link potentially between the movement around minimum wage increases, especially ballot initiatives and politics. And we're not advocating pro or con for any specific candidate here and I'm not asking you to do that, but it is interesting to me that in certain states where there is a lot of energy around ballot initiatives, that generates, I think, a lot of voters who want to come out to vote and vote, obviously, to increase wages for minimum wage workers, often for themselves. And I would think that that would at least increase voter turnout and potentially affect some elections, some specific candidates in terms of winning or losing, potentially progressive candidates, pro-worker candidates. Have you guys been able to chart that or what's your thought about that? Well, let me give you this answer because I think it goes a little bit into into that, uh, what, the question that you mentioned, and also just like uh, it, uh, it will, I think, lead to it nicely. But what we have in generally found is, or we have observed, is that voters really do want progressive populist policies such as the minimum wage for one thing, but also uh, better uh, health care, better access to health care uh, with uh, regards, for example, to expanded Medicaid, etc. Those sort of populist policies are really popular with voters. And we've seen this, especially with, uh, uh, with the minimum wage. We, we saw this in November 2018 when two red states, uh, Missouri and Arkansas, passed minimum wage increases through, the ba- through a ballot initiative and three others, um, which are Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, expanded their Medicaid, uh, and also through ballot initiatives. Um, and so we've also seen, uh, at least with regards to minimum wage, the same thing happening in prior uh, elections. In 2016, for example, uh, Maine, um, Arizona, uh, Colorado, Flagstaff, and I am probably forgetting others, uh, also passed higher minimum wage through a ballot initiative. Um, and we think that this has uh, grabbed the attention of uh, political hopefuls who are running for office. And we've started to see that they have been incorporating uh, a $15 minimum wage or some other type of minimum wage increase into their platforms, in their campaign platforms. Um, and so in, in Illinois, in Wisconsin, actually, just this past election, Fast food really were fast food workers were really instrumental in mobilizing workers, uh, voters around, uh, not only 15 minimum wage and union rights, but also helping some candidates or candidates uh, for uh, the governorship actually win in in those two uh, states. And obviously, that's uh, hugely important because both are in the Midwest, uh, and both uh, had uh, 
problematic uh, governors at, at, at that point, some of whom are maybe more uh, infamous than others. But uh, it, it was a huge, I think, uh, ma this is maybe the link that, that, you were, uh, that you were thinking of. There was a huge uh, effort by, by affected workers who would be affected by a $15 or other type of minimum wage increase in their activity around election time and the ability to help those uh, put some of uh, better, uh, uh, more worker-friendly candidates in, in the governorship. Mm. Yeah. And you mentioned Missouri. That was a great uh, observation because at the same election, the voters rejected the right-to-work law that was being proposed that was before the, the voters. And so I wonder if those two things were quite linked together. In other words, the voters that came out to vote essentially for a pro-union uh, position against right to work and voting for an increase in the minimum wage that had to be very similar voters, let's face it, who were going inside the ballot box and probably were inspired by one or the other and then ended up maybe voting for the other one uh, either way, because both of them obviously seem to be in unison in terms of trying to look for a better life for workers. It, it is striking to me, and then I kind of looked to your list on the campaigns coming up for minimum wage increases at the federal level and in several more states and cities in 2019 and 2020. Why, in fact, based on what we just discussed, why a political movement, and this is my observation, why a political movement wouldn't try to put ballot initiatives to raise the minimum wage on every single state ballot in terms of turning out people. And I thought of this in looking at your list and noticing Nevada, which is as people believe and think it's a more competitive state in terms of electoral outcomes, that there's a attempt there to raise the minimum wage in 2019 to $14 an hour. So that seems to me to be something that really creates a lot of energy. It turns out voters because they are voting pocketbook issues or populist issues, as you framed it. Right, correct. And, uh, you know, in the next uh, few, uh, hopefully in the next few months or at least uh, over the next couple of years, we will see uh, a lot more um, as far as uh, minimum wage uh, pushes for higher minimum wages, but also just in general, more populist, more uh, uh, progressive uh, policies being pushed in, in places like um, uh, Connecticut, Colorado, New Mexico, New York, Minnesota, Nevada, Illinois, and Maine, which now have new progressive legislatures or uh, governors. So hopefully that will be uh, you know, something that we can look forward to. Sometimes even having a so-called progressive government doesn't necessarily end up being the be-all and end-all. And I refer to, and you're quite familiar with this, the attempt to get rid of, raise the tipped wage in Washington, D.C., where there was a ballot initiative that approved that overwhelmingly. And then essentially the restaurant industry mostly came in and influenced the city council to reverse that vote, which I found to be stunning. Yes. And that's a very unfortunate chapter, I think, in the fight for 15. Uh, it's, you know, um, I think the, the, uh, the experience with Washington, D.C. is really illustrative of uh, how it's so important to have workers. They're com con constantly pushing their, representative, uh, their representatives uh, to do the right thing. And even those who are on, you know, the right side of things on many things can make decisions that are really against the interests of, of the people that they serve. And 
against the voices that they have already made uh, uh, clear. And uh, Washington, D.C. was the minimum wage increase, I'm sorry, the uh, one-fair wage ballot initiative was passed by the, the voters of, of the city. And uh, it's really unfortunate that the council decided to listen to the restaurant industry on this issue rather than to the voters that had, that had elected them to office. And I remind my listeners that we dealt with this in a po- previous podcast, and you can find that podcast about the Washington, D.C. ballot initiative around the tip wage and the way in which the Washington, D.C. City Council overturned the will of the people. You can find that in our archive. But I do want to point out that that's in some way an anomaly of the whole list of great successes that uh, Yannette has pointed out in her great study. And so to wrap up, why don't you give us a sense of your feeling of optimism, looking forward down the road, the future in the next few years for raising the minimum wage. I I assume that you think that this is a tide that's just going to continue to grow and there's going to be more people, more um, efforts, successful efforts at the state level and at the local level to raise the minimum wage. Correct. And, um, you know, in in the report that we published, we list uh, some of those states that we think uh, have a better chance over the next couple of years. But one of the most important ones, and although we don't expect this to become law, but it's hugely important symbolically, is the, the effort at the federal level to raise the minimum wage to 15. Now that there's a House majority, there are currently conversations about uh, uh, passing a minimum wage increase of that type in the House. Now the Senate won't probably approve it, and neither would uh, the current president sign it. But it's hugely important to have that as a it, it, this uh, this sort of symbolic action will really help uh, other uh, places, states and uh, cities and localities around the country to continue to push for better wages in their own uh, areas. I'm shocked, shocked that you don't have confidence that Mitch McConnell will take up take up the banner in favor of fifteen dollars an hour for workers. And then when he takes up the banner that Donald Trump will not take up that banner and stand for the working people, I'm just shocked at your, at your cynicism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's, I'll leave that without comment. (laughs) I know I was being, I was being, yeah, completely. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, well, they obviously have other priorities. Uh, workers are, don't seem to be that uh, a priority for them. Now it's time for our Robert Baron of the Week, and our Robert Baron of the Week is the CEO of Standard and Poor's, Donald Peterson. And the award goes to Peterson for the simple reason that he should not get a single dollar of the $10.7 million he got in 2017. We don't yet know the full total he got in 2018. He shouldn't get a single dollar because this company should not even exist. You may remember that Standard & Poor's, along with Moody's and Fitch, the other two ratings agencies, were the fools, the greedy enablers of Wall Street during the financial crisis because they were the ones 
that gave the rave endorsements to the mortgage-related securities that were toxic and were the principal driver of the collapse of the economy and the loss of tens of millions of jobs across the globe and the loss of hundreds of billions of dollars of pension money that regular people had saved. But amazingly, these three companies still control the ratings market. I happened to catch this in a recent Economist issue. 96.4%, 96.4% of the ratings in 2017 are still controlled by those same three firms. Just stupefying, amazing. So for taking millions of dollars from a company treasury that should have been put out of business and is likely to cause future damage to people, Donald L. Peterson is the robber baron of the week. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Again, Happy New Year to everyone. Thanks to my guest, Oren Tyker and Yannette Lathrop. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our other sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, clicking on the podcast tab, clicking on the tab that leads you to Patreon, and becoming one of our great subscribers and our supporters. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Oh,